Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, worship team. Harvest, please have a seat. Good morning. What a pleasure it is to be here this morning. Have you ever considered the reasons that we obey? Ever considered the reasons, the motivation behind our obedience? You know, I would say that uh, a lot of times we obey to stay out of trouble. Would you agree with that? We follow the speed limit because we don't want a ticket. We obey certain parts of the law because we don't want to go to jail. It's a big motivator for us to obey. I would say there's other motivators to obey. How about rewards? How about being obedient at work because we want to be seen by our boss, we want to be seen by others, we want to be rewarded in that way, we want to look good. Now, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with these reasons for obedience, but what would the Bible say? I think right away our mind should jump to we obey out of love for God. I think that should be number one. I think that should be the the biggest motivator for obedience to God is because we love him. But I think the Bible also gives us some other motivators for obedience. And we're going to look at that this morning. We've been studying the book of Philippians. We come to our passage this morning after a marvelous look at the humility and obedience of Of Jesus Christ. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a human, a servant, and a sacrifice. We leave that passage and we get to verse 12 of chapter 2. We're going to be in Philippians 2, verse 12. And Paul calls back to mind what he initially said in verse 2. If you remember from last week, he said, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. He comes back to that thought. He talked about unity. In fact, we've been talking about unity for many weeks, and he comes back to that after the marvelous passage of how Jesus was humble and obedient. In fact, chapter 2 of Philippians flows something like this. Be unified by being humble, just as your Savior was humble. He obeyed, so you obey by being unified. He comes back to this idea of unity, and I'll be honest with you, the more that I study Philippians, the more I see what's rising out of there is this big theme of unity. I've entitled the series Joy in the Journey because it's a joyful letter as well. And we, the church, are on a Christian journey, and the only way we're going to get to a place of joy, individually and corporately, 
is to strive for unity. How do we do that? Well, last week, I challenged you to strive for unity through humility. This week, I'm going to challenge you the same, strive for unity, but this time through obedience. I think we see from this passage that obedience, or unity rather, is another motivator that God's given us for obedience. So here's your first point this morning. Obey with awe-filled discipline. Obey with awe-filled discipline. Please follow along as I read verse 12, chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, let me remind you that we are still under in the context, we're still under Paul's initial imperative from chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The past couple of weeks, we've been fleshing that out. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul challenged the Philippian church to stand firm or be unified in the face of opposition. We saw that at the end of chapter 1. Then last week, we saw him challenge, challenge the Philippian church to strive for unity through humility, and we get to today's message, and it's challenged them to strive for unity through obedience. Now, you remember last week how we talked about how the verse 1 of chapter 2 was, was like half a musical motif. Paul was building up to something. Remember that? He's like, ba-da-dup, ba-da-dup, ba-da-dup. Yeah, we're all wanting to get to that point. We want to resolve. Well, he does something similar here in verse 12. He says, therefore, and you always look at that word when you see therefore, what's it referring to? It's referring to the past passage. Therefore, just as we saw last week, just as Christ was humble, just as Christ was obedient, following the Father, therefore, my beloved, I've told you that this is an affectionate letter. This calls to mind what he said in chapter one, verse eight, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ, As you have always obeyed, we're still building, you can still feel it, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, what does that imply? That implies faithful obedience from the church. They have a history of faithful obedience. They have a pattern of faithfulness in their church. And that got me to thinking, could that be said of us? As you have always obeyed. Now, is he actually saying always every moment you have obeyed? I doubt it. But I think what he's saying there is you have a pattern of obedience, church. You have a pattern of obedience as you have always obeyed. So We're still building. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what he's saying here is you are faithful, you have been obedient, but now it's even more important that you obey though I'm not with you. Now, think about that. It's one thing to behave a certain way when certain people are present. Have you ever felt that tension in your heart? You're obeying because somebody's watching. You're obeying because somebody significant is around. The boss is busy, so they're here, so look busy. In fact, I'm going to share just a brief story. This was many years ago before I was working for the church. I worked at a place, and, and one of the employees was the laziest worker that I have ever worked with. I literally do not exaggerate when I say he would come in and he would sit in front of a computer and he would surf the web. Except when the boss was around. 
And it wasn't just me who observed this. The rest of us employees, we observed it. In fact, we talked about it behind his back. He was always the dutiful employer when the boss was around. So Paul says here, pointing back to chapter 1, verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you. He repeats that same idea here in verse 12. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what's he driving at? He's wanting them to be responsible on their own. That's what he's getting at. I want you to be responsible when I'm not with you. For those of you who are raising kids, what do you hope to see? You hope to see that they can care for themselves without your constant prodding one day. Am I right? In fact, that's part of our jobs as parents. Part of our jobs is to slowly get them to a self-sustaining place. Spiritually, that's what Paul is here. That's what Paul is doing here. He is a spiritual father, and he's goading the Philippians along, hoping to hear that they are taking personal responsibility for their own spiritual work. Okay, let's complete the motif. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I read a commentary this week that said a great deal of unnecessary ink has been spilled over this passage. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have a problem when we approach this text because we often approach this with an individualistic Western eye. We often approach this with an individualistic thinking, an individual, and a Western thinking, it's a Western mindset. We approach it that way because that's our culture. I'm not saying that we're wrong for having that culture. I'm just saying that's the way we approach it because that's our culture, individualistic Western thinking. We tend to walk away or question this and thinking, my salvation is up to me? I have to earn this? Work out your own salvation? Friends, if that's what it said that would be very bad news. Also, if that's what it said, Paul would be completely contradicting himself. See, this is the problem we have with just yanking verses out of context. You yank a verse out of context and you think it says one thing and it doesn't say that. If you've studied the scriptures, if you've studied Pauline theology, you know Paul's view of salvation. You know Paul's view of justification. You know that he stands on grace through faith. Justification, which is the fancy word for my legal standing before God, is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. In fact, that's all through the New Testament. In fact, you see that in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. In Romans, a few years ago, Pastor Tony went through the book of Romans, and what did he hit over and over and over again? By grace through faith, by grace through faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. So for us to come to verse 12 here in the book of Philippians and think to ourselves, well, salvation is something i got to work at, completely flies in the face of everything else that Paul teaches, everything else that Christ teaches, everything else that the Bible teaches salvation is by grace through faith. So that can't be what he's talking about. Absolutely can't be. In fact, if you ever run into somebody who tells you, well, I have to work at my salvation because of Philippians 2.12, then you simply turn to them and say, no. 
That's bad news. So what does it mean? Well, if it's not relating to my justification, my legal standing before God, then it has to relate to our sanctification. Our sanctification is the working out of our salvation here on earth. It's what saved people do. We don't work to be saved, but saved people do work. Now, this is still a little tricky because what I don't want you to do is walk away with this idea of I'm justified by grace through faith, but I'm sanctified by human effort. I don't want you to walk away with, I trust God to save me, but then I rely on my effort to grow as a Christian. I don't want you to walk away with that thought. Point out, let's go to verse 13 real quick. We're going to come back to verse 12, but look at verse 13 for just a second. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now you read that and you might think, well, so which is it? Is my sanctification, my spiritual growth, is that based on me or God? And the answer is, yes. Yes. I have a personal responsibility to do the things God has called me to do. I have a personal responsibility to set in my life personal disciplines, such as reading God's word, such as prayer, such as attending small group, such as going to church. I have a personal responsibility to do these things to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. However, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to grow me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So this is a bit of a thin needle to thread because I do have a personal responsibility to do the things that I should, but I also must rely on God working in me at the same time. See, if you go to one extreme or the other, then you're going to extremes. If I sit back and just think, God's going to work in me, I'm just going to sit back and let God just work in me, that's not going to work. However, if I turn around to the other extreme and I think, well, it's totally up to me and I've got to put disciplines in my life so that I grow, 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 it's not going to work. We need both. Yes, we are personally responsible, but we need to rely on the Spirit of God working in us for his good pleasure. It takes me being disciplined and relying on the work of God to result in my sanctification. Now, I told you before, one of the problems when we approach this verse is we approach it with an individualistic Western eye. There is a sense of an individual sense to this verse. In other words, I should, in one sense, read this verse and take it personally and recognize my own personal responsibility. Yes, but that's not the only way to look at it, and it's not the only way we should look at it. There's a corporate element to here as well. In fact, if you follow the context, Paul is speaking in the plural. He is speaking to the church at Philippi as a whole, and I would argue that in the context, he's wanting the church as a whole to work out their salvation. He's addressing the Philippian church as a whole and encouraging them to work out their salvation as a whole. You might think, well, how do you do that? I can make my own personal decisions, but I can't necessarily make the decisions of somebody else. What does that look like? Okay, let's take it back into the context. Go back to chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul was calling them to do what? Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. How? By striving for unity. This whole book 
drives toward unity. We've seen it. You might even be tired of me talking about it because I've gotten up here for the third or fourth week in a row and said, we're talking about unity this morning. We've seen through this book a drive toward unity. Why? Well, the Philippian church was a good church. Paul loved the Philippian church. He was affectionate with the Philippian church. It was a very good church. It was close to Paul's heart, as we've talked about. But every church has issues. Every church has issues. And that was true also of the church in Philippian. There were areas within the Philippian church where they were disunified. There are areas where they were disunified. So Paul is driving this theme of unity. If you look at 127, he says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Chapter two, verse two. Being of the same mind. Chapter two, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves. He's driving at unity. Why? Because there were divisions. And we get a snapshot of one of those divisions. Take a moment. In a few weeks, we're gonna get there, but take a moment. I just wanna give you, you a heads up. Turn to uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Just flip over, or maybe it's on the same page you are in your Bible. Let me read this for you. Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know the specifics of what was happening between these two women, but there was some kind of division, and Paul has been building this letter toward unity, and he gets to chapter 4, and he actually calls some people out. Tell these women to agree in the Lord. So there were issues in this church, and there were things that Paul was addressing here, and that's why we constantly hit upon this theme of unity throughout the letter. How'd you like your names to be called out in the Bible? One day we'll get to talk with Yodi and Syntyche and see how they felt about that. But. All right, jump back to verse 12. We skip to verse 13, jump back to verse 12 because I want to point something else out here. Work out your own salvation, sanctification, personal responsibility, Holy Spirit, with fear and trembling. Strive for unity, strive for corporate sanctification through being unified as a church that takes humility, we saw last week. It takes obedient, obedience, work it out, but work it out with an attitude of awe. Fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling, that harkens back um, to Isaiah 66.2. You can read this on the screen. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You might remember Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, if you've been in church a while, you've probably heard it said that we shouldn't be afraid of the Lord. Rather, we should be in awe of the Lord. And yes, I agree with that. But what's interesting, when you look into these words in Philippians 2.12, fear and trembling mean fear and trembling. <laughs> That's what they mean. It's good translations there. So how do we understand this? Should we be afraid? Should we be terrified of the Lord? Why is he using such strong language there? Well, look back to verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, therefore, this is, this is God exalting Christ after his humility and obedience. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We serve the Lord with a view of who he is. And Paul puts in there, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because we don't forget who God is. He has been rewarded with the name that is above every other name. Every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. If we could part the heavens and see the throne room, you better believe we would respond in fear and trembling. The Bible has many instances in it where an angel appears and people drop to the ground in fear just because of an angel. Imagine if we saw the Lord. So no, I'm not saying we should be terrified of God in the sense that we should walk around in terror, but we should be filled with awe, reverent awe for the holiness of who God is, and that should motivate us to strive for our own salvation with fear and trembling. We serve an awesome God. You know, it's interesting. Um, our small group has been going through a book on prayer. And one of the things that we have talked about in our small group is, you know, we have, there are different models for prayer. You can make prayer lists. There are different ways that we can pray, and all those are good. But what tends to happen to, some of us have talked about this, is it, it becomes rote. It becomes routine. We lose the sense of why we're doing it, and we just do what we're doing. And I think that's one reason Paul's saying here, do what you're supposed to do, but remember who you're doing it for in awe and wonder, in fear and trembling. So church, let me challenge you. Take responsibility for your spiritual growth as an individual, yes, and as a corporate body by striving for unity in reverence to God and recognizing that he is working in you. Obey with awe filled discipline. Secondly, obey with a right attitude. Obey with a right attitude. Look at verse 14 with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now again, Paul gets real practical here. He says, do all things, all things, all things without grumbling or disputing. Now one of the first things that should jump to your mind when you read this passage is the, the, the Israel in the, uh, in the wilderness. Constantly grumbling. Constantly disputing even. Let me just read one instance of that. This is Exodus 16 verses 1 and 2. You can read this on the screen. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Egypt grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. If you know the story of the Exodus, you know that all along the way, they grumble, 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 and serious consequences happen because of it. All through the wilderness journey, the Israelites grumbled. Now, grumbling here is interesting. It refers to the utterances made behind the scenes. 
Grumbling is the utterances made behind the scenes. It's the sneaky talk. It's the, I can't believe so-and-so did that. Did you see what he did? It's the, that's a stupid policy. Why do they even have that? I don't know what's going on. It's a stupid law. Why should we have to obey that? That's the grumbling. Disputing, on the other hand, is, is more public. It's being argumentative. It's, so grumbling would be behind a person's back, whereas disputing would be in their face. So do you get what he's saying? Don't grumble amongst yourselves, but don't outright argue about things either. Obey what God has commanded with a right attitude. Why? Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. Now, this is interesting because remember, remember we are justified, but we're also working in our sanctification, that you may be blameless and innocent. In one sense, we are blameless and innocent. If you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are blameless and innocent. You stand before God sinless. You stand before God, Christ having taken your sins and you having taken his righteousness. You are a child of God. You are without blemish. But you're still working on it. So what he's saying here is just following that same pattern. Yes, you're justified, but you're still working on it. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, without fault. What he's getting at here is, hey, you are a child of God. Act like a child of God. You are blameless and innocent. Act like you're blameless and innocent. You are without blemish. Act like you're without blemish. Last week, we talked about striving for unity through humility with an emphasis on serving one another. Do you remember that? Last week, we talked about striving for unity through humility with an emphasis on serving one another. It was really church-focused, how we reach out and we look to each other's interests as well as our own. This week, it shifts just a little. Go back to verse 15. Let's read this again. That you may be blameless and innocent. This is why we're, we're doing all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now the emphasis shifts a little bit to those beyond the church walls. Unbelievers. Another reason, by the way, that we strive for unity is for our witness. Another reason that we strive for unity within church is for our witness Why would anybody want to become a Christ follower if the church is ravaged by disunity? Be the children of God you are because you are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Those words crooked and twisted, they they have the emphasis of being morally bent, morally twisted, departing from what is worse, so immoral in other words. Both of these terms capture the immoral world that we live in. You and I is what he's saying here to the Philippian church and by extension us today, you and I are to shine as lights in this immoral world. Now, the word for lights is the same as stars. Shine like a star. What are stars surrounded by? Darkness. I know somebody out there was like, well, nothing. I know, fair. But darkness. Darkness. Stars are surrounded by darkness. Let me challenge you. Why should you act like who you are, a child of God? Because you are to be a star shining brightly, surrounded by the darkness of this world. It's a beautiful thing to see the stars. 
I love looking at the stars. And if you go out at night and you look up on a cloudless night, you see that the darkness is immense. It's immense. But even through that immense darkness, we see the light of stars. Be like that. Shine like a star. And how do we do that? Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Because the world is watching. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The term word of life there, that's a reference to Paul's teaching when he was with him. It's essentially the gospel is what he's saying. Hold on to the gospel. Why? So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Let's talk about this day of Christ for a moment. The day of Christ. That might sound familiar to the day of the Lord. You probably have heard that term used as well, the day of the Lord. But these, ter- these terms are just a little bit different. The day of the Lord is a term that means the judgment that God will render on unbelievers at the end of time. That's the day of the Lord. The judgment God will render on unbelievers at the end of time. That's a terrible day, the day of the Lord. But the day of Christ refers to Christians. We as Christians will stand before God for judgment, but not for punishment, for reward. Paul is talking about the day of Christ when we will stand before God and receive our rewards. Uh, Go to, or 1 Corinthians 3, you'll be able to read this on the screen. 1 Corinthians 3, 15, 11 through 15 goes like this. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of Christ, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now that's a marvelous passage, and I'll sermon for another time, but that's pointing to what he says here when he says the day of Christ. And I don't know what this is going to look like. I have a rather imaginative, sometimes dangerously so, mind. So I'm like, this is some cosmic scene where everything you've ever done, said, or thought is on display. Anyone excited about that? Okay. I'm thinking in my mind of everything I've ever done, thought, or said is on this ginormous altar in heaven, and here comes fire, and everything that I have done with a wrong attitude is just burned up. But everything that I have done in service and humble submission to Jesus Christ survives. And what follows from there is reward. And Paul's writing, back into Philippians, Paul's writing to the Philippians as if he's going to be there watching when they receive their rewards. Again, he's like a proud father watching his children receive rewards because of their obedience. You know, 3 John verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. I think every parent would echo that. And I think every spiritual parent would would echo that as well. When you see people that you have invested your life in serving the Lord, that should, that should fill you with pride. Not wrong pride, but right pride. You had to work in that. And I don't know if we will be all standing together when our deeds are exposed and 
wrong deeds are burned up while right deeds are given reward. I don't know if we'll all be standing together or not, but just imagine for a moment that you are standing with your spiritual children, with those you've invested in on this earth, and you see the rewards that they receive, and you had a part to play in that for the glory of God the Father. So let me challenge you, church, as difficult as this is, you might think to yourself, really? Grumbling? Disputing? I mean, those are small sins. I do those every day. You might be tempted to think that, but just from these few verses, just from these few verses, we see that our attitude affects so much. Did you realize, we, what we get from these verses, listen, do you realize that your grumbling, your disputing is causing disunity, poor witness, and a loss of reward? It's no small thing. Hard, absolutely, but no small thing. So obey with awe-filled discipline. Obey with right attitude. And finally, obey with joyful sacrifice. Obey with joyful sacrifice. Paul writes in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, as you read that, you might read, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, you might be thinking he's referring back to chapter 1 when he was contemplating the possibility that his imprisonment might not end in being released. He's contemplating his death. You might be tempted to think he's saying, if I die even, I'm going to rejoice. Now, he could say that, but that's not exactly what I think he's saying here because he's already expressed in chapter 1 that he's convinced his imprisonment won't lead to death. And he compares his life to a drink offering. Now, the drink offering is a reference to a ritual that would have been familiar with many people groups in that time. The Levites would sometimes take a drink offering. It would be, it'd be a cup filled with wine or water or sometimes even honey, and they would pour it out on the burnt offering or sometimes in front of the altar. And it was a sacrifice that symbolized a, a pleasant aroma going up to the Lord. So what Paul is doing here is he's comparing not his death, but his life, his living sacrifice as something that's going up and pleasing to the Lord. And he's saying, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I will rejoice. He's saying, if my life is to be poured out for you in service, I rejoice. Now, if you have ever served, and I know many of you, if not all of you have, if you've ever served to the point where you felt exhausted, everyone ever been there? Just felt like you just poured your life, poured your energy into somebody. That's the idea. Even if I am to pour my energy, you get to the end of the, end of the service and you just feel exhausted. Even if I am to pour my life on the sacrificial altering of your faith, of what you're standing for, church, of your faith in Jesus Christ, of what you're striving for and you're sacrificing for, I choose to rejoice. Now, let's, let's connect this for a second. Remember chapter one? Chapter one, Paul referred to his relationship with the Philippian church as a partnership. Remember that? We see kind of that theme throughout the book as well. They were striving for faithfulness. They were suffering for their faithfulness. Paul is pouring out his life, and they're doing this together. At the end of chapter one, Paul writes, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, catch this, 
engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now here I still have. Engaged in the same conflict. So what we're doing here is we're connecting that Paul is pouring out and sacrificing at the same time the Philippian church is sacrificing. They're sacrificing together for the gospel. We suffer together, we sacrifice together, and so we choose joy together. Even if I am to be poured out, just as you are pouring yourself out, we are working together, sacrificing everything, sometimes even their very lives, for the sake of the gospel, and we do this together. As you suffer, choose to rejoice. Now, sacrificing should lead us to rejoicing. We tend to think, I'll rejoice in spite of my suffering, but really, that's not quite biblical. Biblically, we should sacrifice because we have the opportunity, or I'm sorry, we should rejoice because we have the opportunity to sacrifice. That's what he getting, he's getting at here. I rejoice because I'm a sacrifice. You should rejoice because you're a sacrifice. John MacArthur writes this. You can read this on the screen. Believer's greatest joy comes at the point of greatest sacrifice because serving God is the supreme purpose of their existence. Let me ask you, church, can you rejoice because you suffer for his sake? That's a tough one. And I know we're not in the same context as the Philippian church. They were experiencing very strong persecution. They were experiencing suffering. They were some being, being imprisoned, tortured, or even put to death because of their faith. We're not facing that, I know. But we do make sacrifices for the gospel. It takes time, sometimes money. It takes effort. Building into each other takes these things, does it not? And it is a sacrifice when I choose not to do my own thing, but to build into the life of somebody else. It takes effort, it takes energy, it takes time when I choose not to do my own thing, but to minister or even share the gospel with somebody else. Those are sacrifices. It takes sacrifice when I don't do what I want to do, but I turn and serve my family, when I serve my small group, when I serve my church, when I witness to unbelievers. All of that takes time, effort, and sacrifice. Can you do that in a spirit of joy? I'll be honest, I struggle with that. I do. I sometimes look back afterwards and think, I thank God for that. But in the moment, I'm struggling. So my challenge to you, when you have that opportunity to sacrifice for the gospel, sacrifice with an attitude of joy. Obey with joyful sacrifice. Jesus says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was humbly obedient to the Father. Jesus was humbly obedient to the Father. And what unity is there in the Trinity? What perfect unity is there in the Trinity? You know, when our Savior prayed in the garden, 
Was it his will to go to the cross? No. Absolutely not. In fact, he prayed this. You know the story. He prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he humbly surrendered to the Father's will, and he was obedient. He didn't want to face the shame. He didn't want to face the pain. He didn't want to face the wrath of his own Father, but he chose to obey, and as we saw last week, he was greatly rewarded. So how can we, as his people, be as obedient as he was by looking to him as the example, by looking to Christ as the sacrificial obedience of Jesus Christ as our example. You know, the more that we take in who Jesus was, the more that we take in Jesus' sacrifice, the more that we take in Jesus' obedience, the more that we will want to be sacrificially obedient ourselves. And beloved, that will bring us joy. That will shape our attitudes. That will brighten our witness. That will energize our spiritual disciplines. And that will unite this church. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the example that you humbly obeyed the Father. We look to you as our example. We want to emulate your obedience for your glory because we love you and because we want to be united as your church. We praise you and thank you in the great and awesome and holy name of Jesus. Amen.